one of my kind of missions is to make smart cities an overarching planning paradigm in the city. So every city is thinking through this lens, much the way that sustainability has kind of become an overarching lens through which things are viewed. Because I think we have to look at tech. That's the only way we're going to solve a lot of these issues. It doesn't have to be AI to the nth degree where it's this intelligent robot, but just things that simplify the processes that we're doing and automate them in some way. Hi, Smart Community friends. In this episode of the Smart Community Podcast, I have a great conversation with Emily Yates, who is the Smart City Director for the City of Philadelphia. Emily begins by telling us about her varied background that began in landscape architecture to how she ended up working in smart cities with the City of Philadelphia. Emily then explains what a smart community means to her and discusses some of the differences in smart city concepts between Europe and the US. We also discuss the importance of flexibility and agility in order to embrace smart community concepts before Emily shares with us a bit more about some of the projects that she's been working on. Emily then discusses City of Philadelphia's approach to smart city projects and she shares a little bit more about one of her favourite current projects. We finish our chat discussing the emerging trends of how tech can assist our ageing societies and the importance of investing in those technologies now. As always, we hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns, and smart cities. It's where we live, work, and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hello, Emily. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Glad to be here. I am so excited to have you. So let's just jump straight in. And can you tell us about your background and what you're passionate about? Sure. I always laugh because it's like, how long do you have? I don't have the typical (laughs) background of a smart cities director, um, I don't think. Let's see. Um, So I studied landscape architecture in college and wanted to do that to be a golf course architect. But when I graduated, it was not a good market for golf course architecture. Uh, And so I ended up going into private development and kind of exploring the built environment and doing a lot of greenfield development and realizing the environmental impact, which led me to work for cities. Um, And I went to the DC Office of Planning and did some neighborhood development there under Harriet Chagoning, who is this brilliant woman that led the smart growth concept here in the United States. And so I I learned a lot from, from her and working there about how cities operate and the role that um, community engagement plays and building trust with the community and really how a a good city evolves. Uh, And then from there, traveled to Europe to do some research on climate change, adaptation and mitigation and waterfront development and really learned um, and lived great transit, (laughs) dense cities, walkable cities, and kind of Floated around a little bit after that, doing some uh, economic development as a consultant, some city branding, sustainability work, and landed at a transatlantic think tank in D.C., where I kind of leveraged my work in urban planning and transatlantic policy to exchange best practices on sustainable and livable cities between cities in Europe and cities in the U.S. And it was there where I really engaged in this new concept of smart cities. And it was really picking up traction in, in Europe, hadn't quite picked it up. Uh, in the United States, it was still very much like a Cisco defined term. 
and uh, not a lot of buy-in. Like, what is this? Is it really going to be something that goes beyond just a fad, uh, fad term? Left that position to go have impact and kind of have my hands back on projects. Uh, I was so busy of kind of being like, hey, here's a cool concept happening in Amsterdam. Can it work in Pittsburgh? And I really wanted to be the person who was kind of in the weeds, you know, hands on the project. Uh, and then, you know, as, uh, as happens, uh, my parents are aging and I have young children and they live quite far away from us up in Wilmington, Delaware. And so we wanted to move closer and the Smart Cities job here in Philadelphia opened up. And I thought, what a great opportunity to really have an impact in a city that has a lot of challenges, but a lot of opportunity and, and be closer to my parents. And so we moved up here right before COVID hit, which was ideal timing because if I, my parents weren't around during COVID, I might've lost my mind. Um, and I've just been really kind of pushing through a lot of really exciting projects here in Philadelphia that uh, are having some impact and really pushing the city forward. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I'm really looking forward to diving into some of those projects in this uh, podcast today. But let's lift out into higher. And I'm thinking, let's start with what is a smart community to you? So the way I define smart community is I just try to keep it really simple. And it's how can we use innovative tech and data to create government efficiencies that allow us as a city to better deliver services to our community but also improve the quality of life for all of our residents. So really keeping that human-centered equity focus um, as we move forward with technology. Mm, yeah, I like that. And I, I also, I think the government processes is really key because I think if we don't have that within our definition or, or within our thinking even, like it's not in my definition, but it's within our thinking, then we can't kind of move forward in this space and bring government, well, government leading this journey, because I think that's really, really important, which may get missed in, you know, maybe a private sector kind of view of smart city or whatever the case is, because if government isn't on the journey, then again, it's just like creating more and more silos. So I think that's really important. Yeah. I'm keen to hear your thoughts around, you know, you spent time in Europe and in the US and, you know, that kind of smart city approach in both places. What are the main differences between Europe and the US when we talk about it, but also when we action smart city concepts? Uh, I think what I see the difference being is that the technology is more integrated within the cities and then within the solutions that they're seeking. So I think there's still a bit of hesitation in the United States to break down the silos, to recognize tech as a solution, and to accept the risk that's inherently coming with testing innovative technology. We're so risk adverse in the United States. I mean, we see this in our playgrounds, right? Like I took my daughter over to Germany and she just reveled in the freedom she had in these playgrounds where there was a ton of risk. And we come back here and it's very protected and, you know, like helicopter parenting and whatnot. And I think that that's also apparent in the way we approach the technology here in the United States. A lot of my work on a day-to-day -day basis is managing fear of change and fear of risk and really kind of saying, you know, we're not taking on that much risk. We're mitigating it where possible. So I think that that's a key part of it. I think that also governmentally, you know, from the EU down to the, the local governments, there's clear directive, right? Like the federal government there, the EU has taken on smart cities as a concept uh, and it trickles down in terms of funding and, and acceptance of that technology we don't have as much of that clarity here in the United States. I think there's a, a disjointing between the federal government, you know, understanding what the local governments need and how to get it to them and vice versa. 
Yeah, and do you think that, like, the EU's been on quite a journey and increased in maturity, I guess, over time. Do you think that over time that maybe the US, and because I, I kind of think Australia is not in the same boat as the US, we're actually, we're different, but some similarities I see with that, you know, risk aversion and that type of thing as well, and just like acceptance of different solutions or change, really, is the nail on the head there? Or do you think it's a difference in, I guess, the approach or the, the culture within, and obviously there's so many different countries and people approach things really differently. I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, do you think over time it will get to that or we have to actually think differently and do things differently now to be able to, I guess, embrace this concept and, and really get what we want out of it, not just, you know, a big tech solution that's not going to serve anybody? I think we will eventually get there. You know, I, I tend to look at smart cities as similar to the sustainability journey, right? Europe has always been a leader in that space compared to the United States, but we're slowly picking up things that they have done years ago. You look at EVs, right? And it was a lot of the European companies that were coming out and committing to no internal combustion engine sales by 2030, and that tipped the market. So I think it's also looking at, at the market. I think you know current situations, what we've seen in the United States is rapid digital transformation in our governments because we had to. And I don't think situations like what we we are in the midst of and have gone through for the past few years will be changing anytime soon. I think we're going to start to encounter situations like COVID that will really affect the government's way of thinking about how do we engage and continue to deliver services when we have these issues of not being able to do things in person or whatever it is. So I think we'll be forced to do it, but then the market will also make it less risky because countries like those in their EU are doing things and making them more standardized. No, cool. Um, I totally agree. I think it's going to be really interesting moving forward as we, yeah, it won't necessarily be COVID, it'll be something else, but it will be, or it'll be something that just shifts that seemingly overnight, but actually it's been shifting for a long time. And then all of a sudden we're going to have to do something differently about it. And I think if we set ourselves up uh, in this approach, we can be more agile. And I think that's one of the key points of smart cities is being able to be flexible because not every channel, not everyone wants to use the same channels, not everyone's going to use the same data in the same way, all those type of things. But if we set it up properly, we can actually shift and change as we need to because it's not a one size fits all, but it's also not a one technology fits all over time as well. Those things will change. Um, So we need to be able to plug and play and things need to be interoperable uh, as we go forward. Yeah, no, and I think you hit the nail on the head there around agility and and being able to pivot quickly is the tension that we deal with in cities, right? Because as cities, we're meant to be stable, not risk takers. You know, we're there to ensure that you get access to all the utilities that you need, all the services that you need. But then we have to come, you know, into situations like COVID where immediately, you know, Philadelphia has 25,000 employees that work for the city of Philadelphia. We had to pivot almost overnight to working from home and and recognizing that challenge, right? And that was a huge pivot. It showed us we can innovate, which was great, but we weren't prepared to do that. And I think that that's the tension that we're constantly kind of rubbing up against in the smart city space is, is that need to be agile, but the resistance to doing that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, cities have a hard job. Like It's not easy, right? You You can't exit from the market. You can't actually choose your customers and you have to continue to serve and it's a 24-7, seven-day-a-week situation. So I think cities 
yeah, they have a tough job. And I think once we recognize that, it's not to say that we can't move forward and we can't improve things and all that type of stuff, but there is a hard job there. And I think that public servant kind of mentality is something that then can drive that smart city approach forward because all it is is about continuing to improve and improve quality of life for communities. And that's not a new concept. That's quite an old concept. But now we have different tools and things that we can use to be able to do that, which I think is really key. And that's why I love working with local governments because they're at the coalface with the community. They're the ones that are really can affect people's lives in a, in a positive way. And on the flip side, when things don't work, then you know, they need to really find solutions really quickly to make sure that people can still access the things that they need to access. And also they work with so many different types of people. The diversity in what, who a city works with is amazing. So being able to operate on those different levels is is complex and, and it requires us a very high level of sophistication, actually. And I think it's interesting how we will move forward and with that mindset too as well, not just, oh, the council just picks up rubbish and does whatever. There are so many nuances. And, and I think people, until you work with council, or not even work with council, until you like look at it or talk to people about all the different services that council offers, if a private sector company offered all those services, you know, you'd be like, why, why are they doing all of that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, community services, libraries, you know, all these things. Um, and it's just amazing. And I just think that that's why we want to really bring all these different parties together because the smart city approach, you know, it's not just council, right? You've got private sector, but you need to have the right kind of mix and, and people involved to be able to come up with these solutions or even, you know, think about the problems that we're trying to solve firstly. So I think it's really, it's important. And I, and I just, I love working with local governments in that sense because they are really the ones that are driving this forward at this stage. And yes, there's this trickle down effect and we all have to kind of work together, but with the community, that's um, something that's really key. So progressive local governments or, or, you know, people trying to drive this forward, it's, I guess that's the way we're going to actually get there. Uh, Cause if we don't, if we just go, oh, we're just going to keep doing the way we've done it. We're going to run out of resources. We're going to run out of time. We're going to run out of money. We're going to do all these things. So it's like an imperative to be able to do this stuff, not this add-on smart thing, which I think used to be the conversation. It used to be like, oh, well, what additional fancy things can we put on this widget, you know, or whatever. Whereas now it's like, we need to do this. This is an imperative. So, No, absolutely. Speaking of local governments, let's talk about some of the projects and things that you've been up to because I've been following you along LinkedIn and, you know, other people posting and, and things like that. So keen to hear about some of the projects you've been working on. Is Are there any in particular? We've got, we are a busy team with lots of projects. <laughs> I, I mean, we run the gamut, right? We don't, I would say we don't do the quintessential smart city projects. We do have some sensor projects. We just deployed a smart block PHL project where we have optical sensors and environmental sensors in 14 streetlights. But then we also are looking at ways that we can take data around our construction and demolition waste and keep it out of the landfill and reuse because we have amazing housing stock here in Philadelphia for a U.S. city to looking at how can we, uh, reframe the phrase best value in our RFP process to mean more than just best offer, um, but really what does it mean in terms of ROI for the city of Philadelphia around food procurement for our uh, food insecure Philadelphians. Basically, the work that we do, the way we come up with our projects is we really try to identify a municipal challenge. So we have working groups that help us identify that, but also conversations with my colleagues 
to hear some of the things that they're working through or trying to address and saying, oh, I think there's a tech solution for that. Let's issue a call, see what comes back, and then we can pick the best solution for Philadelphia. So really flipping the historical, historical is so funny because it's like, what, yeah. five, 10 years ago. <laughs> but flipping the traditional vendor approaches, a city says, hey, I've got this really cool, shiny solution. What are your problems? And we'll like back into solving them. We're really trying to take the bull by the horn and say, no, Philadelphia knows what our problems are. These are our priorities and we want to, to address those. So we've done a variety. I, you know, like I can have talk about any of them happily, but I don't know if there's something specifically. Well, I think even just your approach, I think it's an interesting one. And I, I yeah, I, I find it funny when my, oh, well, traditional autonomous vehicles do this. And you're like, what? No. Um, <laughs> but I guess in a lot of councils and particularly in Australia, they had kind of went for, you know, a smart city team and they did smart city projects and that's what they did. And, and that worked to do pilots and things like that. But what it sounds like, and I think it's the approach moving forward is it sounds like you're talking to all your different teams who are offering services and then you're going, oh yeah, okay. What are your main pain points? What are your problems? And maybe that's identified in your working groups or problems that come from the community or, or whatever the case is. And then you're going, oh, okay, well, I can help you with a solution for that. Let's see what's available. Is that kind of, so it's more, much more an integrated approach rather than just like having something on the side. Yeah, we, you know, my role is much less. So, you know, as I described my background, I clearly do not have a tech background. And I'm always very transparent that if we start to dive into certain technologies, my eyes will probably glaze over because I'm much more about the partnerships and bringing the right people to the table with the knowledge to move things forward. So it's very much cross-departmental, cross-sector, relationship building, trust building, proof of concept work that we do. We don't do anything larger than a pilot because we want the department that's responsible for whatever we're doing to really take it up after we've proven this technology to be successful. We are only uh, just over a two-year-old program. I mean, we're coming up on our third, third year. This February, it was launched in 2019. I started in October of 2019, so theoretically, like two and a half years. We established a program called the Pitch and Pilot, which is our mechanism for being transparent about the way we engage with vendors. So, you know, this is the process we follow. Don't, don't approach us with your technology solutions. You know, we issue this call for solutions, you pitch us, and then a group of individuals will select what the best solution is. We move forward, we implement it in partnership with the department that makes the most sense to support us. We measure it because we want to know the impact and then we support them in the scaling up. And I think the way we get that partnership pretty solid is, is we remove the risk, right? So going back to the fear of risk and innovation, we say, listen, we will project manage this whole project. We will offer budgetary support to it, whether it's full cost of the, of the pilot or we have a cost sharing model of some sort. We'll ensure that it's effectively implemented and measured and then relay those results to you and work to support scale up. What we ask of you is you sit at the table, flag any red flags for us, help get us access to the data as needed, and just be a partner in this. And so that's been a really successful way of working cross-department, implementing projects from Department of Public Health to Streets Department to procurement, and really having success. And I think we recently wrapped up an RFP or a call for solutions for a permitting wizard. And I was really excited uh, in a dorky way when we got approached about this, because it was six departments coming to Smart City and saying, hey, we want to test this out. Can you run it for us? And I was like, yes, this is exactly what we've been working for for the past few years, is you've seen proof of our, our work and what we do, and you're now coming to us as a resource internally. 
so yeah, so it's it's been a it's been a lot of partnership development. Mm, what was that project for? Sorry, uh, it's a permitting wizard. So essentially, uh, as in any city, the permitting process can be a bit of a black hole, I think, or confusing for a variety of people, unless you're a contractor who does it on the regular, right? So we want to make that process more transparent and more accessible. And so what we're looking at is creating kind of a front end interface that says, what do you want to do? Oh, you want to renovate your house. These are the permits you need to apply for. This is where you can access those permits. And this is the anticipated cost. So everything's up front. And then that allows for my colleagues to have additional capacity because they're not answering phone calls all the time, answering these basic questions. And it also makes it much more accessible for individuals who are trying to start a business in, in something that requires permitting, who might not be super tech savvy. And it builds trust with our community, which is ultimately what we want to try to do and to support our community. Yeah, no, it's cool. I love that. So basically before this project, there was all these different departments. So you had to go here to get that, here to get that, here to get that. And then this is bringing that together to go, oh, these are the things that I need. Anticipated cost. Great. Now I know what I need to do after this. Yeah. And it's just, you know, oh, I didn't know I needed something from the Department of Public Health, right? So it's like, this is your list of things to accomplish and this is the order to do it in. So it's just, you know, I hate personally when I need to do something, I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Like, what do I do? Who do I reach out to? Can somebody just tell me what I need to do? And we're basically automating that with a permanent wizard. That's really cool. And even like, you know, you need to do this part before you do that part. Cause I know like, yeah, if you, oh, well do this now. Oh no, hang on. I need this piece of information over here, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And I think there's so many other applications then that that type of process could be applied to, right? If you need a new, I don't know, license or something or, or whatever it is, and then go, oh, I need this, this, and this, and this, um, or if I'm moving house or if I'm doing this or, or whatever the case is, I need to change my thing here and do that or changing your name or, or those type of things, which might be different government departments that you need to um, interact with. And I think for me, that's definitely a key part of smart communities. And, you know, some people might go, oh, well, you know, that's just an inconvenience, but actually it can really affect people's lives if they cannot access the things that they need to access in a timely manner, particularly if they're maybe trying to apply for a visa or something like that. Like it's, I think these small inconveniences, which, you know, for me, you and I might be an inconvenience, but actually for somebody else, um, it may be something that yeah, they can't get a job or they can't do the, the thing that they need to do or their family can't access the right funding or, or whatever the case is. And I think we really need to, I guess, take that into consideration when we are thinking about these solutions and, and processes and things. Yeah, I mean, it, it is essentially that, right? Everybody's time is valuable. I don't want to presume that somebody's time is they have more free time than I do. We want to make the process easy. Less aggravated citizens <laughs> are always a benefit to the city. And we want people to feel like they can do business with the city. So if we make that process much more transparent, much more easily approachable and provide you know, access points. So if you have a question, email this person. So it's just, you know, I feel like a lot of people see the city as a black hole and this is kind of opening up a lens to it. But to your point, it's something that can then be replicated. We have grants to provide small businesses. You know, some, it's not only about home renovation either. It's right. You want to get a, a grant to open a small restaurant, a mom and pop restaurant. 
Well, you don't have a lot of time. So how can we make that easier and more approachable for you? How can we make access to financial resources easier or certifications easier? So there's a ton of ways that we can utilize this. That's why this pilot is exciting is then we scale it up and it can be just really applied to anything that has a process, which we all know cities are huge fans of. (laughs) Yeah, we love process. We love it. Okay, I'm keen to hear about one of your favorite projects maybe one that maybe not so traditional smart city that you've been working on? Oh, that's hard because these are all your favorite children. Personal. <laughs> these are all, all my favorites because they're all solved like a solution to a challenge. And I love puzzles. I think I would have to say right now, my favorite is this meal logistics one that we're doing because it's just one piece of a larger puzzle that I hope we get to work on over the next few years. It started as a conversation with a colleague of mine talking about how we utilize USDA federal funds to procure meals for food insecure Philadelphians. We procure with this one company that's not local, uh, which means that, you know, there's a lot of semis driving through the city, delivering 60,000 meals a day. We provide two meals and a snack. It's all done in single use plastic. We don't provide silverware. So we don't provide meals with like salad, for example. So there's a lot of things that are impacted in my mind by this process. We have air quality. We have, we're not supporting a regional or local supply chain, which we all learned the importance of over the past two years. We're increasing the amount of plastic litter that can get into the two rivers that surround the city of Philadelphia. We're not supporting local businesses and we're not potentially, you know, they follow healthcare guidelines, right? So they're in line with USDA requirements, but we're not introducing these kids to a broad spectrum of foods that could really benefit them in regards to their health. And so the first bottleneck we reached was, well, we're not interested in exploring this further unless we know the demand can be met locally. So that's the little like bottleneck we're working on right now with a local company using technology, AI to determine if local restaurants can indeed meet the food procurement need that we need in a distributed model, right? So instead of coming from one source, can we distribute it based on where we have rec centers and distribution points for the food? We're working through that. And then my next hope is that we pilot something and we look to things like reusable containers. So, you know, TerraCycle, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're located not too far from us in Trenton, New Jersey. Can we partner with them to look at reusable dishes maybe made from something, a byproduct of some waste line here in Philadelphia that we provide the foods in with silverware so we can have things like salad or soups. And what's great about that is we have a delivery point that's consistent. So people can bring their containers back when they're picking up their next load of food. Can we support a local EV company that delivers these foods using zero emission vehicles and reduction of particulate matter and and air pollution in our communities, which is employing local people. So again, kind of that ROI. And that's what has me excited is really seeing like the ripple effect and the systems change. Can we procure this food from local farms? You know, farms are having a hard time. You read about the cost and, and, you know, like the lack of people who want to farm and can we start to support them and tap into the regional agriculture space that we have here in South East Pennsylvania? Like all of those things are what really get me excited. So I'd say that's probably one of my favorite projects right now, just knowing larger impact that we could have. Yeah, no, I really, that 
project sounds really interesting. And I guess like all those different supply like chain kind of challenges and opportunities, and there's so many different things that it touches. And I think that's the essence of what a smart community project is. It's not, oh, okay, now we've got, you know, smart lighting or whatever. It's all those other things that it affects, all those other things that it can change, all the other data sources that we can make better decisions about it. We can ask people questions. We can look at the trends. We can improve it. We can, you know, over time. And then we can also support our local community as well and then bring in that global expertise as we need to or whatever the case is, you know, what, however it works. But then thinking about, well, we've always done it this way so and it, it seems to work. But the problem is all these other things that, you know, that you were talking about, like the plastic waste and all these things that we want to reduce now. Can we, you know, there's so many opportunities, I guess, to improve things, not just for the community and improve quality of life for the people that need this service, but then also can we improve the environmental impacts and all those types of things as well, which I think these days it has to be like that. We can't just solve one problem and create another one. And I think that's really key. And I think that's where technology and data can help us do that too. And not just that, but new ways of thinking, different communication methods, different people involved, different skill sets involved. And, and I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, I one of my kind of missions is to make smart cities, as I've defined it earlier, an overarching planning paradigm in the city. So every city is thinking through this lens, much the way that sustainability has kind of become an overarching lens through which things are viewed. Because I think we have to look at tech. That's the only way we're going to solve a lot of these issues. It doesn't have to be AI to the nth degree where it's this intelligent robot, but just things that simplify the processes that we're doing and automate them in some way, generally speaking, is in the best interest environmentally as well, right? Finding efficiencies. Yeah, I agree. And I think technology is so broad and data is so broad, so many different things that we can do with it. But you know, automating things that can be automated in the sense of you don't need somebody to be doing that. And it's, I think, you can and free up their time to do other exciting things, right? And I think that's one of the key things. It's like, well, it's not that you're automating it so then they don't do anything. It's like, no, then they can think about these other things and come up with these brilliant ideas, which they couldn't before because they're stuck doing some process that's really mundane. Let's zoom to the future now. I'm keen to hear your thoughts about emerging trends that people aren't talking about enough. So my big obsession lately... <laughs> is the silver tsunami that's coming and how are we dealing with these aging baby boomers and utilizing technology to help them age in place and continue to access services so that there's not a massive like impact on our systems. I think that that's something, you know, we're really focused on. I don't think we're focused enough on that, honestly, in terms of how like telehealth and the aging in place and accessing public transit so that they're still able to be mobile and whatnot. I don't think we we thought that through enough. Mm, I think that's a really key one. And actually, I was talking to somebody else on the podcast. Uh, yeah, in Japan, because they have this super aging population. So silver, silver tech or something is going to be really, really key. And I think there's a really important imperative, but there's also an opportunity that we need to think about now because we need to really do better in that space. But also we want to make sure that people can have this great life for longer as well. And I think that will be a really important one. And I think, you know, I've been talking to some healthcare providers and, and that type of thing. They're thinking about this, but it's like, 
I think it will start we'll start to kind of bring these things together, but it's not like, oh, a smart city, oh, you think of aging population. And I think that's where this maturity in the conversation will continue and, and that stuff will start to come in. And I think it's important. But also that a lot of the things that, you know, can help older people can help everybody as well. And so investing in this now is, is gonna be key. And we're all gonna be old one day too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be really interesting. I think that's a great trend to start off with because I just think, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity in that space and so many things that we're not even thinking about now that will will really help. And like you said, it's not necessarily, you know, robots and and things, but, you know, that might be part of some solution. But some of these kind of simpler things that automate stuff that, you know, we don't have to think about, uh, I think will be really important. Yeah, I mean, so we hosted an, an augmented reality challenge with our regional transit authority called it SEPTA for SEPTA is the regional transit authority. We call it SEPTA for all. And it was focused on utilizing augmented reality to create better accessibility for the disabled community to access public transit as we recover from COVID and want more people riding. But in talking about it, I was like, listen, it's a very broad disabled community, right? I think the aging population, while not the, the typical disabled, has some of the same challenges in terms of comfort in riding and comfort in navigating system or you know uh stations and whatnot and so that's something to also think about is like how do we make this augmented reality tool comfortable for them to use my parents are you know they're older they're not my mom listens to this they're not that old (laughs) but i would say that their comfort with technology is not the same as me and you know navigating a new space a new place how to get from one you know a to b is very nerve-wracking for them. And so again, if technology, we need to think about that as well in order to sustain what they're doing, keep them moving as long as possible. Yeah, agreed. And I think it's interesting to think about your level of comfort. And I think this with travel, travel really helps. Like for me, I go, I'm when you actually start thinking about, I'm not going to do that because it's a little bit uncomfortable. It's probably completely safe and it probably is fine and you'll probably be all, all okay. But you might have to do that because maybe that's how you get to the train or the plane or the blah, blah, blah. And so then you move through these levels of discomfort. But if you don't have to, then you'll choose an option that's you know best. So maybe you will drive or maybe you'll get a, a ride share or whatever. But if you can reduce those inconveniences or discomforts even slightly, and maybe that's through education or maybe that's through different design mechanisms, but maybe it is through providing more information or having somebody... I don't know, like a, I call them digital ambassadors for a certain period of time when there's new technology, et cetera, et cetera. Then you can get people in and then they can teach their friends. Like grandma can come and she'll teach her friends. Oh no, it's really easy to catch the bus. Let's do it. It stops right outside our door or whatever the case is. And I think that's another thing that we potentially forget about when we're trying to design these solutions or think about why people choose certain things. It's that level of discomfort that's really important. Again, maybe minor inconvenience for me, but I know that I can work it out. But for other people, it's like, oh, well, I've got this other option. Why would I Why would I try? Because it can be really, really uncomfortable and, and really not safe as well. Because if you get stuck somewhere and you don't know how to use a phone or whatever the case is, or you don't have enough money to be able to shift and change, I think that's really important um, that we recognize that too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it's been so great to chat with you, Emily. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I, yeah, I love talking local governments and I have been following you along LinkedIn for a while now. So yeah, really appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. 
Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Well, I just have one last question, which is how can people connect with you? So LinkedIn is always good. Uh, Emily Yates on LinkedIn. I don't remember what my special handle is. Twitter is something I'm trying to get better at. Uh, it's Emily M Yates at my Twitter handle. Uh, I would say email me if people want to email me, uh, emily.yates at phila.gov. Uh, I usually, I try to get back and be responsive to people, but my inbox sometimes gets overwhelmed. So people are welcome to be persistent, but those are probably the top ways to get a hold of me. Very good. We'll put all the links in the show notes so people can click away and find you. So thank you again for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Are you looking for an engaging speaker, MC, or facilitator for your next big event? Then we've got you covered. Zoe is a go-to speaker, MC, and conversation facilitator with a difference. She's a master at simplifying the complex and making connections you might never see. Book Zoe for your next event. Email hello at mysmart.community or head over to her speaker page, www.mysmart.community forward slash speaking. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at smartcomhq. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Community podcast is what you're looking for.